From Casa de Esperanza's National Latino Network, I'm Nancy Nava, and this is Conversations Over Cafecito. At Casa de Esperanza's National Latino Network, we understand that visibility and representation matters. Join us as we interview researchers, advocates, community members, nonprofit leaders, trailblazers, and policy influencers about their contributions to end gender-based violence what they wish they had known, and how their life experiences have influenced who they are today. In today's episode, we'll get to know Dr. Rebecca Fix and Dr. Rebecca Rodriguez, who along with me recently published an article on adolescent dating violence, in which we discuss dating violence and intersectional social identities. Um, welcome, Dr. Rebecca Fix and Dr. Rebecca Rodriguez. Thank you for joining us today. Um, Becca and Rebecca, I know we've been working together for a while now, and I'm excited to be able to talk today about our recent publication. But before we dig into our conversation, I want to ask you how you take your cafecito. I'm not much of a coffee drinker. I, I do drink caffeine, so I, I really like tea a lot. Um, so my main preference for coffee is that it tastes as little like coffee as possible, which means I douse it in creamer and flavored creamer and syrups and sugar and things that make it very unhealthy. So I tend not to drink coffee drinks very often. Um, but if I do, they don't really taste much like coffee. Yeah, um, I, I do like coffee and, um, you know, different trying different kinds of coffee. I'm not a big fan of flavored coffee, um, but right now I take my coffee with, with just a bit of cream, no sugar. Yes, I think I am a little bit like Becca. I don't drink much coffee. Um, when I do, it's like um, with milk and caramel maybe and creamer. Um, but I do love drinking tea and um, I've also liked like bubble tea. So I'm wondering, Becca, can you tell us a little bit about the work that you do? Can you get us started? Yeah, absolutely. I am a clinical child psychologist by training and most of my research focuses on um, one of two arms. So I, I both look at youth's use of violence and pathways from experienced violence to their use of violence. And this includes physical and sexual violence, mostly among peers, but I do um, extend the scope of my work beyond that. And then the other major arm of my research is focused on understanding and preventing racial and ethnic disparities in the criminal legal system, particularly in the, in the juvenile system. So I, I came to that work. Um, I had experienced violence myself as a child, multiple forms of violence, and had peers that had also experienced violence and racism and discrimination, and became very interested in working with survivors of violence. And as I volunteered during undergraduate, um, my undergraduate uh, schooling, I guess, uh, when I was doing volunteer work, I became looped into this opportunity where I was working with youth that had not only experienced violence, but were using violence themselves and recognized that that was a calling for me um, to start working with people who not only had experienced violence and were survivors of violence, but 
we're also coping with that or um, you know, dealing with different emotions by using violence themselves against others. And so that's broadly how I came to the work that's relevant to our project today. Thank you. I first um, really got into the gender-based violence field when I actually met Rebecca. Um, so I met Rebecca when I was um, in undergrad. I remember uh, I was a psychology major. I knew that I wanted to become more involved um, with the Latino community as I identify as Latina, but I didn't really know where to start. So I remember that you know, again, there's not a lot of um, professors that uh, Latino professors in, in college, or at least back then, there's still, there were even less, right? So I remember looking up at, at, at my university's um, directory and like just looking for someone who like did Latino work within the psychology department. And without any appointment, without anything, here, here I am, as I think that was like a sophomore and I just walked into her office. Well, of course, I, I checked in at the front desk, but I walked in uh, to Dr. Julia Perilla's office back then. And she was meeting with Rebecca. They were having their like weekly check-ins. So I got to meet both of them and they got me to volunteer for um, Caminar Latino, which is a local domestic violence organization here in Atlanta. And they do some amazing work. And I, I started volunteering, getting involved. And that's, that's how I first got started in learning about just the different violences that exist, um, its impact, how it affected the Latino community in, um, specifically. So that, that is how I got started. But I know that Rebecca went on to do much more amazing things and I later on got reconnected with her. Um, Rebecca, do you wanna share a little bit about the work that you have done within uh, the gender-based violence field? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I um, started working in gender-based violence and um, in graduate school and I applied to, to work with um, one of the leading scholars in in um, intimate partner violence in the Latino community, and she, Dr. Julia Padilla, and she was also um, working in working with migrant farm workers in South Georgia, and initially that was kind of my my career trajectory, and that's the work that I had done um, research in as an undergraduate student. Um, with the migrant farm worker population. Um, so the, the emphasis on gender-based violence was was something um, that I kind of leaned into. Uh, and I think in part because the philosophy and, and training that I received from, from Julia was really focused on listening to the community um, and responding to Kind of the needs that that they present um, rather than coming in with kind of our own agendas um, and it and it happens so often in our communities and in many communities that 
violence against women, intimate partner violence, sexual violence, um, workplace harassment, all of those things are prominent. Um, so that's kind of what started me on that. And and yeah, I I got to work with her for, you know, seven years in my PhD program and really got my um, boots on the ground training at the organization that she helped to co-found, um, Caminar Latino here in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and I've been, you know, doing research and evaluation around culturally specific um, practices to support Latino families. That's great. So I'm curious to know, well, I kind of know a little bit about it, right? How uh, Becca and Rebecca, you met, and then how this um, paper that we all published together, like who started the idea? Because I came in to uh, the writing of this manuscript a little bit later on, um, but I know that uh, Becca and Rebecca, you had connected way before that. Yeah, I remember meeting Becca at um, an advanced training institute from um, that the American Psychological Association holds every year. And, and this one specifically was on, um, I think it was around research methods in ethnic minority communities, maybe was the phrasing. I can't remember. I don't know if you remember, Becca. There was something like that. I don't remember the exact wording either. Yeah, I think we did really connect around the idea of, of intersectionality and how um, social social identifiers can really um, like need further investigation. What happens when we start to look into who those women are, right? So are these white women, black women, Latina women? Are they poor women? Are they upper middle class women? Um, are there women with different um, different abilities? And, and those kinds of questions always really, really intrigued me um, because I think that the issue sometimes is presented very, very linear, linearly, I think. So one of the other things that for me inspired my interest and drive to do this work looking at intersectionality specific to teen dating violence is that I identify as bisexual and um, have been aware of the increased rates of teen dating violence in the LGBTQ community and was really interested in folding that into the work that I'm doing. Thinking of intersectionality and how we used it within our article that we published, um, I think one of the takeaways I had from it, and it's nothing necessarily that I learned new, right? Because we had, um, there's research that has, that does show that LGBTQ youth experience um, physical and teen dating violence uh, more than um, heterosexual, um, you know, uh, youth, boys and girls. And then, but I think the interesting part was when we were, um, cross-referencing cross them and also tying it in with um, their other identities, right? So not just 
um, their sexual orientation, but also their race, that when you're comparing groups, still um, non-white youth experience, whether, whether they identify as LGBTQ or not, they still experience higher rates of um, teen dating violence. Right, and the way that um, you know, mandated reporters respond to them is different. Um, the way that the system is set up is different. There are fewer resources um, in some communities or specific to, to individual groups. So if a youth does identify as gay or lesbian or bisexual, they might feel like, where, where is there that I can go um, to, to receive some type of source resources? You, you know, on that note, um, something that was actually surprising for me. So I did think, you know, using the intersectionality framework was really critical for this work. And um, I, I was not expecting, though, that, for instance, like black girls, black heterosexual girls, their rates of teen dating violence were actually lower than gay or bisexual boys across racial or ethnic groups. And um, this is probably just, you know, I had been very siloed in this, you know, this black white dichotomy of research and existing research to date is so limited in focusing on just one or maybe two social identifiers that I only knew of prior findings that would suggest black girls might have among the most, the most elevated rates of teen dating violence, regardless of their sexual orientation. So, um, you know, I really think the findings from our study should be eye-opening for many individuals and really give all of us pause and how we interpret findings and in existing research. And even our study is limited. You know, um, Rebecca, you were really bringing up some, some great social identifiers that weren't available to us in this, in this existing database, but that really might influence some of the rates that we're, we're observing here. So people's abilities, um, people's income levels or their families, you know, economic resources, all these things matter. And so there is still much work to be done. Nancy, you, you came into the project with, you know, I feel like this, this renewed energy and excitement. And, um, you know, Rebecca and I were both working on grant funded work and um, this paper was a long time coming. So it was really great that you brought that to the team. And um, yeah, no, thank you both for inviting me to be part of this paper. Um, I remember when I first started working with Casa de Esperanza, um, we wanted to do, we wanted to continue working on this paper or really um, we had to switch, right? Because we had been looking at the YRBS database from the CDC from I think uh, the year prior to to our to our publication so we wanted to we had to like update our data mm. um and, and that's really where I came in and I was super interested in working in this paper with both of you not only um because of the amazing collaboration and I learned so much from both of your expertise but I also had um my big my big interest is working with you and I was really curious to look at the stats um, of LGBTQ plus youth and how they were being, the prevalence of teen dating violence among them. And then um, looking at the sub-identities, right? Not just teen dating violence, but breaking it down by um, race. And um, also how did that translate into 
um, internalizing behaviors like depression and suicidal ideation. I have done some previous work with mental health. So those were another of the, um, those were some of those some were those were some of the other areas that I was interested in seeing. Okay, what is the data going to tell us, right? What are we going to find here? Um, but we definitely had an amazing journey, you know, writing this paper and collaborating together. Um, Rebecca, you want to tell us, uh, or Becca, you want to tell us a bit about um, the the importance of why of teen dating violence. So for me, as, as I developed in my, my scholarship, um, transitioning from, from looking at intimate partner violence among adult couples to looking at violence between adolescents or, or young adult um, couples, made sense for me from a, um, a prevention lens as well. Um, and, and like granted, this is, like these ideas are developing as I am attending a family-based domestic violence intervention program. So, and my role there was for, you know, I think eight, eight or nine years facilitating a group for um, for young adults, 16 and up, who were whose parents were in the program, right? So they're they're mostly mothers were um, abused, had experienced violence against them. We invite the children to attend and the young adults. And for me, that was a critical place where you could see the way. Um, relationship norms have been um, internalized or 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 thought about um, you you would hear about relationship dynamics that were happening with the youth that attended um, and and as I strongly believe in this you know family-based intergenerational approach to domestic violence um, it, it it just it made sense to start looking at at youth violence at at um, at teens specifically. Um, I don't know if that that part is helpful. I think that's really useful and and just building off of what you're saying or piggybacking off of what you're saying. I I have both observed just firsthand the cycle of violence occurring. Uh, many of the people that I've worked with as a therapist, uh, many of the boys and their family members, I mean, the, the types of violence that they use are oftentimes a reflection or mirrored behavior based on what they've experienced, or at least it's a reaction to what they've experienced. And there's a lot of research that demonstrates that those patterns that of behavior that we begin during childhood and during adolescence are often maintained into adulthood unless there's intervention. And so, we aren't taught what healthy relationships are oftentimes. I mean, there might be some high schools or middle schools that, that teach inf information about healthy relationships, but many of us learn what a relationship looks like from our caregivers, from family members, and then potentially from media as well. And none of that, you know, in, in some youth's lives might reflect a healthy relationship. So because we are 
more malleable during adolescence to change. I think that's a really critical point. And that's when we're starting to begin to explore and try out new romantic relationships oftentimes. And, and that's a, a perfect point to start to address what does a healthy relationship look like? What does it not look like? And start some of that prevention work that's really critical. Yeah, and I and to bring it back to the intersectionality, it also provides like another um, another lens to think about um, how um, how kind of these intergenerational cycles of violence happen, because it isn't just um, about like I think it's Bandura's social modeling theories, right? It's not just about um, seeing behavior in your family and then like um, kind of internalizing that. It's also about like, where are you in the social location of the world that we exist, which makes, which gives rise to circumstances that are going to give rise to conflict and violence and stress and abuse, right? So it's also like a lens of, of broadening it out from like, pathologizing individuals, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I'm nodding quite a bit with you, I agree. So this study um, is definitely is not perfect, right? Because there were some um, challenges and limitations that across the study and the way that um, their data collection is conducted. I think it would be good for us. To, I mean, this is just me to talk about like how there's these, um, you know, journals prefer papers that are that don't have like racialized or ethnic group terms in the titles, right? So it's like less likely the papers will get published if they are specific to certain racial or ethnic groups, or if they even included something like an intersectionality focus, um, like acceptance rates are just far lower. And I feel like in my work, I've, I've seen. Um, plenty of reviewers say, oh, this would probably be better in a journal that's specific to racial and ethnic diversity. Um, yeah. And then I feel like I've also heard that there's just fewer available re reviewers. And so it, 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 the amount of time it takes for papers to be reviewed is significantly longer if your research focuses on either um, anything involving intersectionality or anything involving like diversity, equity, inclusion, or people of color yeah people of color yeah, yeah. any oppressor I mean I think that's yeah yeah I think I think that's a really good point and and it gives also another perspective to like POC researchers in academia or POC researchers who are interested in looking at um they're not that they're not interested but like opportunities to serve as an editor of a journal or provide leadership in that space. Yeah. Um, and we, I mean, we know all of the, the data around um, academia is so white, right? Like, <laughs> like that's the thing. I think, Becca, you, you had more information on that, right? I, I remember you saying there was a reason why you wanted to, or you had your opinion and thoughts of why you wanted to change that. Why is it always um, white heterosexual males, the referring group for everything when we're doing this data analysis? 
Yeah, yeah. So the um, kind of there's, you know, there's certain defaults in research and just what we consider to be the, the norm. Um, if we don't specify someone's race or gender or sexual orientation. And um, while I was doing my graduate training for, for a comprehensive examination, we have to do a, a comprehensive review, a critical review of the literature. And I was really interested in understanding experiences of black boys in the criminal legal system. And so I wanted to review articles that were specific to black boys in the criminal legal system. And this, this, is, this started even in my experiences of learning about like, oh, we view this, we being the, you know, many, the majority in academia, um, view this as like, we need to have some kind of a comparative group. We can't just look at individuals, you know, one, one racial group of individuals. However, if you look historically at research, um, I think the only time we're really relying, um, and this isn't current, right, but, but historically, the, the times when we were relying on all black groups, all Latinx, like it was, it was a time when we were taking advantage of those populations and doing unethical things. Um, but what I was interested in doing was really looking at within groups of individuals, there's so much variability and so much heterogeneity, heterogeneity and we're missing a lot of the richness of those experiences by just saying, well, we need to compare you to, you know, the privileged group. So in this case, it would be if we're looking at um, individuals who are Latinx, it would be people who are non-Latinx. Or if we're looking at people who identify their race as Black, then we're looking at where well, we have to compare you to, to white people or women, we have to compare you to men. Um, but again, there's really no, um, no statistical or methodological reason that that's necessary in all forms of research. Yet it seems like that tends to be the, the default approach. And that's really frustrating. And it's frustrating that that was something that we encountered. And um, this paper got published in a, a great journal. And I'm, I'm really glad that people will, will be able to look at this and see it'll have high visibility, hopefully, and people will see like, wow, intersectionality is really important in this work and perhaps in other work as well and, and you know, build off of what we're doing. Um, but it is frustrating that we had to kind of take that default approach to, to get there. Rebecca, do you have any, as we close, do you have any final thoughts on our conversation today? Thank you so much for this opportunity to talk with you today, Nancy and, and um, Becca, and, and to, to be able to reflect on, you know, some of the reasons or the ways um, why we do the work in the way that we do. I really think that First of all, we we need more representation um, across all uh, oppressed groups in the United States. We need representation in key leadership positions. So certainly we need individuals like an I'm in an academic setting. So certainly we need faculty um, who represent um, oppressed communities. But beyond that, we need even higher leadership. Like we need at my university, I would love to see us have a president who, of the university um, who represents some marginalized or oppressed communities and our, our deans, instead of us just focusing on, you know, the, the people who are in charge of racial and ethnic diversity in the school, you know, kind of being those key people, I, I would like to see that all leadership 
be more representative of the communities that they're serving. Um, I think that's really that's something that's missing. And I certainly encourage anyone who's listening to this, regardless of your um, social identifiers, to consider using an intersectional lens in the work that you do. You don't have to be from an oppressed community to partner with community members and elevate their voices and ensure that you're doing work that they want to see done and that is meaningful, meaningfully impacting and, and assisting members of the community. Um, I don't want people to feel like they have to shy away from that. And then certainly people that are from the community, it would be great to have more, more of those voices elevated as well um, among faculty and among people that are doing, doing this type of work. It's my only main remaining takeaway, and I don't even know if it's really a takeaway, is just that um, this work was an opportunity for me to start expanding how I, I view my work and how I frame my work and is going to continue to, I think, improve my methodological approach. And not only that, I got to know two colleagues better through this work and a, a new colleague, you, Nancy, um, and I really am looking forward to just building on our work and continued collaborations with both of you, Rebecca and Nancy. Thank you. I mean, I've, I think I've said it a couple of times, but it was just such a great experience to partner with both of you. Um, it was, I learned quite a bit from, um, you know, both how you came in with your, your different lens into the work and knowing Rebecca had that participatory community-based um, lens and really looking at this, this is just secondary data, right? We, we didn't really create a research project ourselves, but looking, looking at um, the data with, through, through our different perspectives and especially when we were writing out the discussion and the results and really what the implications and what it meant for us and how it impacted the work that we're currently doing. Again, thank you both for taking the time to be our guests in our podcast conversations over Cafecito. It was a pleasure having both of you today. This has been another episode of Conversations Over Cafecito brought to you by the National Latino Network for Healthy Families and Communities. A project of Casa de Esperanza that builds bridges and connections among research, practice, and policy to advance effective responses to eliminate domestic violence and promote healthy relationships within Latino families and communities. For more information, visit nationallatinonetwork.org. This program was produced by the staff at Casa de Esperanza, National Latino Network, and music composed by Joy Horton. I'm Nancy Nava. Thank you for listening. Hasta, hasta la próxima.